This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The city's plan to allow music on outdoor patios is finally a go. Um, the only area that is not allowed is on the bayfront. Of course, there's been all kinds of controversy about the Sarkoa thing. Um, but, I, I mean, the idea of, of music on patios is certainly an appealing one to uh, moi. Uh, I'm sure it probably is to you, too. And probably is uh, quite a, a good thing for my next guest, who is Dean Collette, the owner of Sizzle and Koi, down there in Hess Village, or or Hess as they're simply now calling it, Dean, how did it become just branded Hess? Am I new to that? <laughs> well, I mean, people are going to call it what they want. I mean, there is there is a move afoot with the operators down in Hess to uh, to, to rebrand uh, the village, as it used to be called, simply because there's been a lot of negative press over the last couple of years, um, most of it uh, grossly unfair, but there's also just a perception down there that people uh, that go to Hess are are simply uh, it's simply for college kids, and it's not. I mean, we have uh, over nine restaurants. Uh, our food programs are are some of the best in the city. I I would argue that we have the nicest patio scape in the entire city, and there's a certain section of the population that, for whatever reason, um, just because of some negative media over the last couple of years, just doesn't um, seem to understand that the food program in in Hess is a thriving one so I think that's part of the rebranding are you guys still paying for extra police presence and that kind of thing on Friday and Saturday nights when when school's in that actually got taken care of um, by council about a month ago Um, there was a uh, a proposal put forward by by council that was ratified uh, which uh, the the formula has changed immensely there's there's far less police uh, than there used to be, um, simply because there isn't the need that there used to be. But also the portion that is left um, is is now being paid out of a different fund through the city. So the operators are no longer on the hook for the bill. This is the first summer in about 15 years that I've been there that um, we're not going to be having to pay for police anymore. Well, that'll help the bottom line of all the entrepreneurial uh, restaurateurs and bar well, owners. Actually, what there. I can tell you is that the money that was allocated to that has been reallocated by the bar owners, and we are now um, <clears throat> we're we're back to to having festivals. Good. Um, we've got uh, we've got one coming up in June, uh, late June, and then uh, in total. Uh, we're probably going to have four this summer. Oh, that's really uh, great news to hear. Are are, are the police uh, when they do sh- uh, appear? Are they uh, on horseback ever? <laughs> that was always well, kind they, of a novelty. Not, the, the horseback, the horseback uh, patrol was never part of the compound. No, but you do see them down there. I mean, yeah. they're 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 omnipresent downtown. You see them all over downtown. But yeah, for sure, you see them in the village as well. But they were never part of the initial compliment. So. All right. All right. Let's get down to uh, the, a discussion about the issue that uh, we invited you on for, which is the outdoor music, outdoor patio music. I mean, at face value, who who would be against that? Um, you well, know? I, I mean, I, I think it was probably, I, I don't know how many years ago that bylaw went into place, a long time ago. I'm sure it was born out of fear. Um, it, it was a... It was a, it was a um, you know, sort of a response where you you bring a sledgehammer to to solve a, Kill a an fly. issue that really you know that didn't need it, right? I mean, yeah. there was there was maybe some areas of the city where people were concerned about noise, so the city at some point I don't even know when the bylaw was enacted. It's, uh, it predates I think my operation, uh, and I'm close to 20 years now um, having a patio. But you know, at the end of the day, we have existing noise bylaws, and um, 
you know those bylaws are sufficient. They they call for a certain amount of decibel level, and if there's if your noise is uh, emanating onto your neighbors, then bylaw can show up and and charge you. But you know we had we ended up having this blanket policy where right across the city, no patios were allowed to have any form of entertainment. You weren't allowed to even have a television on your patio. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. So um, you know, I, I would imagine too, uh, as a bar owner, as a restaurateur, that you know, there's an in, you have an interest in being a good corporate citizen, being a part of the neighborhood, and and it doesn't make sense for restaurants and bar owners to uh, you know be ripping it till two o'clock in the morning if everybody's steamed at you about it. Like you know, that's not a good thing for business, is it? So no, I, you know. it's not. And and so let's be clear. First of all, with regards to the bylaw, it doesn't it doesn't allow for music all hours of the night. It only allows it to. Uh, I I believe it's going to be eleven p.m. It might be midnight. Yeah, and. And secondly, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, the thing about it is that bylaw wasn't was not protecting people from uh, specifically from irresponsible operators that were blasting music till two in the morning. We already that bylaw hasn't changed. Yeah, it's still there. Can't do that. Yeah, you're exactly. It's still there. So when and and it was funny because when they tabled this for a year last year, it was sort of based on those fears. And I think people common sense has finally prevailed. There is still a noise bylaw. There's there's not an elimination of noise bylaw. You can't blare your music to the point where your neighbors can't sleep. You're just not allowed to do it. And if you do, and if neighbors are in that position, they can certainly call by call bylaw. But the second point of your question is a very valid point. You want to be a good neighbor. You want to be part of the community that that is looked upon positively. I can tell you that for us, we rely heavily on our neighbors to come and dine and hang out on our patio and enjoy a nice afternoon or evening and spend their hard-earned dollars in their local neighborhood. So if we're not, if we're not providing um, the type of environment that our neighbors want, well, they're not going to come. Not only are they not going to come, they're going to have a real negative attitude towards you. So yeah, you're right. You want to be a responsible neighbor. You want to be a good neighbor. You want to be a part of the neighborhood that causes it to thrive. You know, like Hamilton is, is now being recognized as a as a true urban city. Like we have, you know, we have a thriving art scene, we have a thriving music scene. It's it's people are 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 more and more uh, moving downtown, and you can tell because of all the different developers that are clamoring to buy a property and build downtown. Sure, yeah, and and in, and if this is again, uh, if we're going to see music on patios, you know, all all over town except for the Bayfront, as as has been uh, declared here. Um, you know, maybe the challenge then going forward, I I don't know, is you know, is getting enough um, talent to play these patios because I I think it's a, I think it's a really cool thing uh, for you know, uh, patio surfers, if you will, to know that there's outdoor entertainment going on. It's going to be an attractive feature for those that choose to put entertainment on their patios. And, and it's going to increase competition a little bit, which is always good for everybody. Well, and there's a lot of musical talent. Yeah, there is. And and, I mean, we can, uh, you know, we can, uh, now go ahead and plan for things. Like I can tell you that at Koi, our anniversary every summer is in June. And, where we we were we started to meet about what our plans are going to be for that yesterday, and I can tell you that we do have a plan that on the day of our anniversary we're going to have music beginning at noon. We're going to have live entertainment from noon right until 10 p.m. and and now now it's something that we can plan for. Whereas in the past it was 
it was always, you know, if we do it, there's always the chance that, you know, we're going to get called and shut down by bylaw. And now, now that won't happen. And, you know, whether it's somebody that's, you know, a single musician with a guitar or if it's a three-piece band and it's something that's a little livelier and fun. I mean, who doesn't want to sit in a patio at 5 o'clock and enjoy the sunshine and listen to good local live music? Exactly. That's something that we can actually do again in Hamilton. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. So as as um, as restaurateurs and, and bar owners, do you often collectively get together and, and discuss things? I guess what I'm getting at here is outside of Hess Village, where you are, and obviously you talk to all the owners in that area, but do you talk to other owners in er- other areas of the city that are developing? Uh, uh, James North, uh, Upper James, there's a couple of places, uh, Lock Street, this kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I can tell you I'm very good friends with Brandon uh, on Lock Street, and they, they've been doing the, the, uh, the you know, the, the festival. It started with just the West Town doing it, but they have the Lock Street Festival in September. But I, I know that for for the folks at uh, unlock and you know not just the west town but other places this is now something that gives them an opportunity to look at what they can do right i mean when when you have a when you have a draconian bylaw that is that is all encompassing and just as flat out you you can't even have tvs on your patio it's it it tied your both your hands behind your back yeah. so i'll give you an example in june we have the world cup coming and so you know the world cup is something that is is uh it's cross generational. It is. It's every. It, it, it. Whether you're a big soccer fan or not, it's something that everybody rallies behind. There's a lot of national pride. You know, we have a yep. diverse community in Hamilton. So for us, we're already making plans to to put um, televisions on our patio. We had a television on our patio for the World Cup last time, but when when the Euro Cup came around, we were told to take it down. And so we were, people were trying to watch, people would come in and say, hey, can we watch the soccer game on the patio? And we're like, no, we're not allowed to turn that TV on anymore. Oh, man. And people were, people were incredulous about it. They couldn't believe it. But it, 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 it was actually, that was the law of the land. And now we're, uh, we're making plans to get our, our TVs back on the patio. And so now you don't have to sit inside on a nice June day to watch a World Cup game. You can actually sit outside. And people come, they wear international colors, they... You know, they sing songs. It's a lot of fun. And, and for anyone to say that that is detrimental to any neighborhood, I, I don't know what neighborhood you want to live in. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that's true. How do you, how do you um, book uh, musical acts for uh, bars and restaurants? Do they come to you or do you go to them? Is there a place that you can go, a clearinghouse, and say, it's It's, you know? it's networking. I mean, you yeah. know, it's, and there's also social media now, too. But, I mean, there's a... There's a there's a group of professional musicians in Hamilton that are known to the bar owners, so yeah. it's just a matter of reaching out. And you know, it, it, it's it's uh, it's for me, it's because I've been you know back in the day in, in Hess Village, I used to own a bar called Thirty Three Hess, and and so we did live music seven nights a week. And really, it's it's kind of an organic thing, you know. I mean, there are booking agents, but when you're talking about local talent, you don't really go through booking agents because it's a little bit cost prohibitive, and you know, you're trying to strike a balance between being fair and paying the musicians, uh, you know, a good wage, and and also making sure that you're not pricing yourself out so that you, you really can't afford the musical talent. So, but there is there's a there's a there's a you know a lot of really talented musicians that that are professional you know like there's there's tommy swick who i know that 
Um, we're going to be excited to have him play in our patio this summer. And, you know, Jesse O'Brien is a keyboardist in Hamilton who plays with a number of different groups. These are the kinds of people that you reach out to. And then they, depending on what type of, of event you're planning, you know, you can, you can, you'll be able to find there's, there's so much musical talent. No, there is. That's true. This will be a good thing. Uh, this will be a good thing for all those musicians, including my uh, buddy, uh, Kristen Nichols, who's, uh, out there on the music scene uh, as, as well doing his thing. And, actually trying to teach me how to play the guitar from time to time. <laughs> Boy, if I get good enough, Dean, I'll be knocking know, on your... I'll book you next year. I was going to say, I'll be knocking on your door saying, at least give me an audition. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, good luck with all of this. Um, hope you, you you guys have a wonderful summer. We'll come down and uh, and definitely take part in uh, all of this this summer as well. I think this is a really great thing for, for business. It's a great thing for patrons. It's a great thing for our city. So thanks for spending some time with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right, Dean, take care. Bye for now. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. What do you think of the idea of smoking pot in your condo? Well, um, I guess like a lot of things with the impending legalization of marijuana, there's a lot of, you know, kicking up of dust about, oh, how's this going to affect our the way we live in our condominiums? And uh, apparently there's some concern about Things like secondhand smoke uh, of the the smell of marijuana, and some condo uh, boards are uh, moving to enact policies around marijuana um, that includes banning it entirely uh, from condos. Uh, there seems to be a lot of ideas and thoughts around what should be done, what could be done, what must be done, uh, but a lot of it seems pretty full of holes in terms of its ability to be enforced. Uh, joining us on the line uh, to talk a little bit about it is uh, a lawyer, Matt Maurer. He's the chair of Minden Gross's uh, Cannabis Law Group. Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Um, always, we you have when you start doing this stuff, you got to have lawyers involved because you are the only guys that can kind of help people navigate through what's possible based on what their desires are. Uh, and in this case, around the use of marijuana and smoking in condominiums. I, I didn't... Re- yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, just especially in sort of this new industry where there's a lot of unknowns and there's going to continue to be a lot of unknowns until we sort of see how things play out. Right. So there's a lot of money to be made for the legal profession in this. I know you guys are... I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. I know you guys take that heat all the time from people. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, it, it looks like a hodgepodge in a messy bird's nest of ideas and policies and you know don't don't these policies have to meld with the laws of the land in order for them to be enforceable well yeah and we're looking at a lot of variables you know you've got the federal law which has the framework of how legalization is going to work you've got certain things that have been left to the provinces uh, such as consumption where where people can consume and can't consume and then you've got the municipalities which also will have a say in a variety of things and then when you drill down even further, you've got entities like condo boards that are going to regulate what can and can, can't be done in a, in a condominium building. You know, nothing when it comes to new rules or new legislation moves quickly in our country. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, you can bounce a bunch of these thoughts and ideas around and you can have condo board meetings and votes and you can even enact policies. But without everything in place being clear and solid... It could be decades before any of it's enforceable. There'll be a whole lot of time, a whole lot of money uh, spent. 
maybe for nothing in the end. Um, is there a better way to approach this at this point, or are we just sort of in a wild west because it's all because um, marijuana legalization is going to be a new thing? Well, I think there's a lot of debate over how good of a job the government's doing. I think you know, all things considering, they're doing they're doing a pretty good job. And the federal government's giving us some certainty as to what things are going to look like, and the provinces are doing the same. But I think until, um, you know, the law is going to come into effect probably later this year. And um, what's going to take a little bit more time is things like court challenges and charter challenges and constitutional challenges to things like, uh, you know, bans on smoking uh, or bans on medical use or uh, the new driving laws that are coming in. And those things are going to take a while to sort of work their way through the system. And that's when we'll get a little bit more clarity on um, how that black letter law is going to be interpreted. So uh, what seemed to be the the real driving larger issues with condo corporations and marijuana? Do, look, can you boil it down a little bit for us? Well, you know, my understanding is that it's 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 protecting residents right to reasonable enjoyment of their units so it's i always you know use the example it's similar to smoking if, if you're sitting in your your condo and your, your place reeks like cigarette smoke because your neighbor smokes it's out in the hallway it's on your balcony it's coming through the vent um you know it's a balancing act they've got a right to smoke on one hand in their unit and you've got a right to not have smoke waft into your unit next right. door so it's um that's that's really what we're getting at. I think that's the reasonable restriction in terms of um, smoking of marijuana in your unit. When we start getting into things where if, if the, the condominiums were going to outlaw, you know, vaping or oils or edibles, when those become legal, it becomes a little bit harder to justify because that's really not interfering, arguably, with anyone else's enjoyment of their unit. And are there condo boards that are trying to do that at this point? Um, I haven't heard of any in, in particular, but, you know, I think they're starting to look at it. And uh, the, the one in Toronto that's been, been the subject of, of the news in the last couple of days, my understanding is they're going to allow cigarette smoking, but they're going to ban marijuana smoking, which I don't, I don't really understand the, the rationale behind um, if, if the idea is to, you know, stop sort of offensive odors and noxious smells from, from penetrating from one unit to the next. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what does a condo corporation do? Do they have to retain a lawyer right away if they want to start uh, changing policies in order to draft, uh, try and draft policies that the corporation can vote on that have a chance of passing? I would think that they'd have to get legal uh, advice very early, wouldn't they? Well, the lawyer in me will always tell you it's good to get legal advice very early. Um, the practical person in me tells, tells will tell you that not everyone does that. And you know, a lot of condominium corporations are comfortable. They've been doing this a long time, and they think they know what they can do and they and they can't do. And, you know, it might be a case of getting legal advice up front or, you know, preparing the rule and then having the lawyer vet it to see, um, one, how it's going to go over, and two, if it gets challenged, what's the likelihood that it's going to be upheld? Well, i, I got to say, I'm, I find it curious that this is all kicking up just around the idea of, of marijuana becoming legalized. They, they, people really seem to have this fear that, you know, there's going to be this massive increase in people smoking uh, marijuana. I, I, I don't know as that's a, a reasonable fear uh, because only 17% of the population smokes tobacco now. I know marijuana is a different product from tobacco. It puts you in an altered state. But as you pointed out before, there's many ways to get 
marijuana into your system that don't involve smoking. So I'm, I'm a bit curious as to why there's such fear here. I think it's fear of the unknown. It's, it's something yeah. completely new. Our, statistically speaking, our country has one of the highest usage rates of marijuana in the industrialized world. And um, the fact that we're making it legal, that that's exactly why the government's doing it, because keeping it illegal is not working. It's not keeping it out of the hands of children. It's not restricting access. So what the whole, the whole rationale behind it is to regulate it, to sell right. it in a store like alcohol, um, and I personally don't see, I think there will be an increase in usage because it's going to become a legal um, a product and something. That's oh, yeah, and there'll be a novelty, there'll be a novelty bump right off the bat. There'll be a, you know, I can do it, so I'm going to, and yada, yada, but that I suspect that'll drop off. Yeah, possibly, and I think people are going to be surprised uh, when they start to understand, understand the industry more. This isn't, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago where you're, you're buying something from someone and you don't really know what's in it or what the effect it's going to have, it's really developed into a scientific industry where consistency and delivery and dosage uh, and predictability as to what's going to happen if you, you, know, you eat this truffle or you take this, this drop of oil um, is, is at the forefront. So instead of having a, a bottle of beer or a glass of wine with dinner, uh, maybe you'll have a, a THC, a cannabis-infused beverage, which will provide the exact same effect uh, you know, they'll say without the calories. Right. The other thing is, um, uh, most of these fancy condos that are uh, have been built in the last uh, ten or fifteen years, and the, the new ones have these uh, incredible uh, fan uh, fume hoods above their cooking uh, services. Uh, my goodness, you could almost get sucked out yourself. Um, you know, you run, run the fan, and the air is completely clear. It goes right outside. I don't know. I just think this is much ado about nothing. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, like I said, I think a fear of the unknown. Um, and a lot of people are panicking, I think, more than they need to. But there's some value in, in having these discussions ahead of time. And uh, for people that are, you know, sort of making a bigger deal out of it, in a sense, it's a good thing because it allows you to sort of examine the issue and decide, you know, how should we actually go about doing this? Because it's going to be a process. We're not, you know, once the law comes into effect, there's still going to be some growing pains and, and we're going to figure out how we're going to deal with it. All right. Matt Maurer, uh, chair of Minden Gross uh, LLP's uh, Cannabis Law Group. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's uh, bring another expert into the uh, conversation here. We've uh, reached Denise Denise Lash of uh, Lash Condo Law. Uh, Denise, thanks for the time today. Pleasure to be here. You must be very busy. We've reached you in Toronto, and and I was in Toronto uh, two days ago, and uh, it had been a while, and I can't can't believe the number of condos uh, that I see. Yeah, there's uh, tremendous growth, and it's keeping condominium lawyers very busy these days, especially since there's all these new legislation. It's not just marijuana. It's electric vehicle charging stations. It's a new condominium app. So we're very, very busy So uh, with those uh, other issues that you've mentioned, and I think you're, this is a cool thing to come into the conversation on, with, with all those issues to deal with, you know, how far down the list does secondhand smoke uh, related to marijuana come uh, in the big picture of things here? It just to me seems like something that's probably not going to see a lot of attention a lot of the time for a long time. Well, it's the number one issue. <laughs> See, it is, it you is proved me wrong. Hot topic of the day. <laughs> uh, it's it started about 
four months ago. And you have to keep in mind that uh, for years, condominiums have been dealing with smoking issues, whether it's cooking odors or cigarette smoking. We do have legal issues, and there have been case decisions dealing with smoke penetration from one unit to the next. And then there became issues, human rights issues, because there are people that suffer also from secondhand smoke, and you have people with uh, health, health issues where secondhand smoke can be a really dangerous thing. So condominium boards and management companies are taking this very seriously because they're worried that now with marijuana, there will be more smokers. There definitely will be more smokers. And that means more potential problems. Right. And, you know, anybody that's been around marijuana smoke will tell you that as, as nasty as tobacco smoke is, and it is, marijuana smoke seems to really hang in there. Um, it seems right. to, to really hang in there and not dissipate as, as well. I said to our last guest, don't all these condos have these super-duper ultra fume fans above their cooking surfaces? I mean, is it really an issue if yeah. you've got all that new air circulation? I don't know. No, well, you're forgetting about all the older buildings that were built in the 70s and right. 80s. So smoke is definitely an issue, and it's not just the smoking. The proposed new legislation will allow the growing of four household plants. And I didn't really know what that meant when I heard about that, but now I've learned a lot about marijuana these past few months. And these plants can grow quite large and produce all kinds of problems in terms of humidity and mold growth. Okay. So, so condominium corporations not only are prohibiting smoking, and some are prohibiting smoking in the units as well as the common areas, so going smoke-free, but they're also prohibiting the growing of marijuana plants. So they figure people on their terraces or, or balconies might, uh, you know, have four uh, pots going with uh, with plants that are getting rather tall. And it, yeah, are they? They're, they're concerned about no, the. It's not. It's the inside. It's inside. They're growing. Yeah, they're mm. growing inside. And we've had grow grow up situations, illegal grow ups. It and it really affects the unit and the common element. So it can be a major concern. But you have to also keep in mind, this is done by way of rules, and some corporations, probably half of our clients, are going with rules. Some are just prohibiting it on the balconies and the common areas. Others are doing completely non-smoking in the units and on the balconies. Uh, but they have to grandfather existing smokers, and they're handling the tobacco smokers the same way marijuana smokers right. are treated. So they have to grandfather. So that's why the rush is on now to do rules, because you grandfather existing smokers. And obviously you're not grandfathering existing marijuana smokers because they're not allowed unless it's for medicinal use. Denise, you know better than anybody that um, it's, it's, you know, fairly easy. I put quotations around that. Fairly easy to uh, set up regulations, set up rules, um you know, get rules in place. It's a different matter altogether to enforce them and rules that rules or legislation that isn't really enforceable or easily enforceable isn't very good. Um, do, do, would you not think that there, there, it's going to be difficult to enforce these types of uh, regulations? No, I think it's going to be the same way we enforce other rules. So okay. if it's 
if, if someone is smoking in a non-smoking building, uh, they'll get notice, and then the the law, the law firm will get involved, and they'll be charged legal fees, and it will go to mediation, or it may go to court, depending on the situation. So we, we always are actively involved in enforcing rules, and these are just another type of rule. I also want to mention that these rules are passed, and then there's a 30-day period for the owners to object to it. They can call a meeting and vote against it. So that's in the Condominium Act, and so there's consumer protection there. If the owners want don't want it to be smoke-free and want to smoke marijuana, they're free to challenge it. Okay, well, that's democratic. I mean, it's supposed uh, to be democratic. Yeah, yeah. no, no, but that, that's that, that's good. Good to know. I I always think you know there are. It just seems to me that there this is going to be. I just feel instinctively that this is going to be much ado about nothing. I suppose it's a, a good idea in case I'm wrong, which I have been many times before. Um, in case I'm wrong, to have some sort of a framework of of rules and regulations established just in case they're right. But I don't, I think this is going to be much ado about nothing. That's what I think. I'm not sure I agree with you. So let's say you do nothing. If the corporation does not pass rules now, when the legalization of marijuana comes in, uh, then they're not going to have a way to enforce it. Uh, it, it will, yep. you know, they'll have to deal with it causing nuisance to another owner, but they won't. The, the general smell into the hallways, they're going to have to deal with it. And so uh, they'd rather take steps now to ensure that residents are protected. All right. Uh, good points. Denise Lash, uh, Lash Condo Law, a very uh, busy uh, lawyer in Toronto. Thanks so much for the time today. A pleasure. Take Thank care. You. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Drinking and driving, um, impaired driving uh, remains uh, a concern for us in society. I would like to think that... Um, you know, we've uh, improved in that regard. Um, I'm not sure what the statistics say uh, for 2017 or into the early part of 2018. Uh, but I would like to think that the message is is getting through. I mean, I remember it was my uh, generation of young people that they really uh, made a lot of legislative changes around. And there was a lot of messaging about, you know, designated drivers and not driving, drinking and driving. And we, we got that message. Uh, for the most part. And, uh, you know, that's just been a way of life for uh, my generation since we came of age and were able to legally consume alcohol. So now uh, uh, conservative senators are leading the charge to water down legislation that's aimed at cracking down on impaired driving. Uh, The Senate's Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee has voted to delete a provision from Bill C-46 that that would authorize police to conduct random roadside breathalyzer breathalyzer tests without needing to have reasonable grounds to suspect the driver may be impaired by alcohol. So I suppose if you were stopped by police because, um, I don't know, you made an illegal lane change without signaling or some other thing, um, the police would then have the ability to say, okay, I'm I'm also going to need you, while you're giving me your license and registration, I'm also going to set you up for a breathalyzer. Uh, Anyway, the move was proposed uh, late Wednesday by Conservative uh, Senator Denise Batters on the grounds that the provision is likely to violate uh, the Charter of Rights and would therefore be struck down by the courts as unconstitutional. So we talked about this before. You know, if, if, 
if there a law is is flawed, uh, then it's not enforceable, and then it's a bad law. Only the only laws that are good laws are ones that are enforceable. Um, she won the backing of four other conservative senators on the committee, as well as the committee chair. Um, five independent senators voted against deleting the provision, uh, and uh, one other liberal independent abstained. Uh, bill C-46, by the way, is a companion bill to government legislation to legalize uh, recreational marijuana. However, the provision the committee voted to delete is meant to apply only to alcohol impairment. Uh, so what do you think about this? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Should we be just handing over police uh, the right to give you a breathalyzer for any reason at any time um, uh, without having reasonable grounds to suspect that you may be impaired? Is that okay with you? Or do you agree with the senators that uh, this is, you know, this is not a good thing? It may be unconstitutional. And no, they shouldn't have the right to do that without suspicion or reasonable grounds. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Uh, joining us on the line is Angelo DeChico. He's the general manager of Young Drivers of Canada. Angelo, welcome to the program. Hey, Jamie. What do you think about uh, about this? Um, you know, the, the senators are saying giving police the right to uh, give you a breathalyzer for any reason whatsoever is uh, probably going to be deemed in- unconstitutional. So we need to get it out of this bill. Oh, uh, I'm I'm torn. I mean, everyone. We live in the greatest country in the world. We have constitutional rights that have been fought for and. We're in a wonderful society, and so someone needs to protect those rights. However, I'm a little biased. This is my 30th year with Young Drivers of Canada, and, you know, we're at 1.3 million graduates across Canada, many of them 16 to 19-year-olds, but now a lot of them 25, 35, 45-year-olds. Try 51. I was one of them, too. You're one of them. And so the point is that... What you've said about um, good laws are enforceable, part of uh, of the psychology behind it is certainty of consequences. If, if you know it's wrong, you're not supposed to be doing it, really to get compliance, you have to believe there's a good chance you're going to be caught, and then the ramifications are consequential. And so over the years... As you said, a lot of our our students understand the risks with drinking and driving. They know it's wrong. But there was always that stick that randomly you could be pulled over and suffer the consequences if you were, you know, impaired. And so one hand, yes, the Constitution, somebody better figure that out. But I'd hate to see um, a generation of newer drivers or licensed drivers thinking, well, the certainty of consequences is a little lower. Maybe I've had one more drink than I normally would, and rather than calling mom or a taxi, I'm going to chance it. So personally, I'm thinking anything that could potentially lead to an increased number of impaired drivers on the road, we've got, we got to think this one through. Well, I, I happen to agree. I think that um, I think that giving police the ability to um, apply a breathalyzer 
wherever, whenever they feel like it is exactly what we need. I think it's a great thing. Uh, and I think it should be, again, it can be used to, to promote the idea that you should never drink and drive. And um, I don't see anything wrong with it at all, because if you're not drinking and driving, you have nothing to be concerned about. Um, if, if you are, then the police find you, even if maybe they didn't have reasonable cause to suspect you were drinking and driving. But lo and behold, look at this. You're blowing over the limit. Oh, my goodness. So so they get a dangerous driver off the road. And I mean, How many times have you or the listeners been pulled over randomly at a ride check onto or off of the QEW or the 401 or, or some other place? And you're thinking, oh, I'm clean. I feel really good. Yeah. But you know that the person in front of you or the car behind you possibly is going to be uh, found out. Yeah. So I don't see how this is any different than random uh, random ride uh, checks. Mm-hmm. It, I, I, don't, I don't get it. I see a lot of upside uh, for yeah. safety. I see a lot of upside for society. I see a lot of upside for, um, for law enforcement. Uh, I, I, to me, it's a bunch of wins. So, yeah. and, and as you're saying, that I think part of the idea is that it may end up still being constitutionally valid as there is such a large upside for a society. And when we were kids, when we were young, uh, drinking and driving was in the movies. That's right. It was on weekly TV shows. And it's taken a long time to get to the point where you're a social pariah if you're if you're drinking and drink, your buddies now think you're dumb. They don't think you're cool anymore. Yeah. So sliding back, I mean, are we going to have to revisit this in two or three generations and say, oh, we messed up? Well, and again, I come back, Angelo, to, to, you know, we need anything and everything we can to get dangerous, impaired drivers off the road. And when I talk about impaired, I mean impaired by distraction, Mm-hmm. You know, impaired by alcohol, impaired by marijuana, impaired yeah. by uh, prescription drugs. That's a whole other topic unto itself. But let's just take alcohol, marijuana, and and mm-hmm. and texting. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, you know, into consideration here. People would be surprised. I'm a member of the Canadian Coalition on Distracted Driving, a, a Canada-wide organization. Great people. But and I was at a conference a few weeks ago. Many of us would actually be surprised. 68% crashes. Why? Distraction. Lost in thought. Lost in thought. How many times have you passed by your interception or or your way home or you get home and you don't remember the last five minutes? Imagine now that you're impaired or impaired by alcohol or, or cannabis. On top of to that. Right. Near you. Yeah. Yeah. You go out, you have one too many and then you're uh, you're you've got your Pavlovian response mm-hmm. to your social media notifications. Mm-hmm. You you know it's critically important that while you're doing a hundred, a hundred and twenty down the down a four hundred three uh, highway mm-hmm. or a four hundred series highway that you must check your Instagram. That that's yeah. critically important right now. Of course, uh, to find out how popular you are. Socially conditioned. You hear the ding ding. Part of your brain goes to wondering. If it was important, and you don't want to te- you don't want to check it because you know it's wrong, but part of your brain is already there. A couple of your cognitive forces went over that way, and so again, that's the distraction. 
And then if you're impaired with alcohol and or drugs, ooh, even reaction time now so, is going to be an issue. So, Angelo, do do you have any, you know, rough statistics at your fingertips about how we're doing in terms of drinking and driving? Have we, have, we're, we're doing way better. Going back up. Yeah, so it took us generations to get to this point, but the last two years there are more convictions with impaired driving. And so it is still an actual issue. I was teaching class last night, and, uh, you know, mostly 16 to 19, but some older ones who are legally able to be drinking, but they can't be drinking and driving. And it is that certainty of consequences that puts that fear of God or the law into them, on top of being the social pariah, uh, you know, to society at large. It's taken us a long time to get to the point where we are, and we want those numbers for impaired driving to go down, mm-hmm. not stabilize. That's not good enough. You've got to go down. Yeah, obviously. Um, and again, I think the, the distracted driving thing is uh, is probably become a, an even bigger issue than than impaired Most drive. People, that's the new. It's the new drinking and driving fruit on the tree. And again. The class I was teaching, 16 to 19-year-olds are still overrepresented in the fatalities column by mm-hmm. proportion of their uh, makeup on the roadway. And so those people are looking to us, politicians, the senators, to be sending the correct message uh, via legislation, uh, via examples that, um, you know, for your mom, your dad, your co-driver, whoever, and mm-hmm. they're thinking that, no. Oh, Maybe you could get away with it today, or there's, it's less likely to happen. They're looking to us as an example. So we want to be sending the correct message, in my opinion. Sure. Just, just offhand, uh, and I'm, I'm going to ask you, since I have you on the line anyway, I've, I've been talking to some young people recently, people that are you know, 13, 14 years of age. And, and I say to them, Hey, are you, you know, a couple of years, you, you'll be able to, you know, drive. Are you excited about that? And, you know, in my day, everybody couldn't wait to get their driver's license. Uh, And now they're all saying yourself. Yeah. (laughs) Well, nobody else would date me. Um, (laughs) So, so you're going down the road that you're, we're the last of that generation. Older and older students are now uh, coming to us for novice driver training. And part of it is because um, way better city transit, other alternatives, maybe some helicopter parenting. Oh, do you uh, think? Driving them here and there. But they don't have the same need and des- desire to get out because they brought the outside world into them. <laughs> we can buy their phone. I and guess so, that's true. And now when we go back to the vicious yep. circle of the Pavlovian response to that that ding, that dong, that message is coming in. It's all important. You and I used to go out for a drive to relax. Yeah. Now people don't go out driving for relaxation because there's traffic. They yeah. Do, what they do is they play a game. They check their likes. That's what they do. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, Angelo DeChico, a general manager of uh, Young Drivers of Canada. We've reached him in uh, the big smoke today in Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. Everyone Appreciate have it. a wonderful day and turn off your cell phone. All right. Good idea. Thank you, Angelo. Take care. Bye-bye. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Uh, are you good with the idea of... Um, 
legislation that would allow police officers to simply apply a breathalyzer to you at a stop whenever they want to. Uh, They wouldn't necessarily have to have reasonable grounds to suspect that you may be impaired by alcohol. That's contained in Bill C-46. Some uh, senators are saying they'd like to have that taken out of the legislation uh, before it passes royal assent because they figure it'll be unconstitutional. My attitude is, why don't we try it first? Let's try it. because what, what's, what do you got to lose by keeping it in? Maybe it'll get more drunks off the road. And then if somebody with a fancy lawyer wants to challenge it and it goes to uh, the SCOC and they rule that it's unconstitutional, then we'll deal with it at that point. Um, but I think I think you got a tough, not a lawyer, but you got a tough road to hoe by suggesting that something that could benefit society overall is uh, could be deemed unconstitutional. Again, I'm you know I'm not a I'm not, I'm not a constitution lawyer, but what do you think? 905-645-3221 or star uh, nine nine hundred. I think it's I I think any tools that we could possibly muster that will get more people who are impaired off the road is only a good thing. And I'm happy to have it be somewhat nebulous in the legislation so that if somebody really wants to challenge it, they can. I'll take my chances. But in the meantime, you know, maybe we'll get a few more drunks off the road. How can that be a bad thing? Hi, Brian. Go ahead. Hey, how are you, Jamie? Good. Still got that shiny Oldsmobile? No, long gone, man. Oh yeah, Too can't bad. afford the gas. <laughs> hey, uh, I tell you what, I I don't think it's a good idea. I don't, you know, it's as far as that goes. If they pull you over, then you might as well have the right to cuff you while they're talking to you. Yeah, I just think it's it's going too far. It's too much for you, is it? Yeah, but I tell you what, I'd rather see them do. Why don't they build something into the cars where you? Hey, I you know what? I would have a problem getting in my car if it had blown a tube and if it blew over, it wouldn't start. I'd far sooner have that investment in a vehicle than have an autonomous capabilities. That's an interesting. Um, that's an interesting idea, especially when you consider how many uh, new safety features in vehicles: the automatic braking, the warning lights and sounds that go off uh, to the side of the vehicle, and cameras, and all these things that are now appearing in vehicles. You know, how that, hard? How hard can it be? Well, I like, ma- imagine it wouldn't be hard at all. That's a very interesting idea. You know, well, I'd far sooner pay more money for a car that had that capability, knowing that everybody else that had the same restriction in their car, then you wouldn't have to worry about people drinking and driving. Yeah, good point, Brian. All right, thank thanks for the call. Stay safe this weekend. Take care. Thank you too. Okay, bye bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Earlier this week, it was revealed that the federal government is looking at modernizing Canada's family laws. Um, and it leaves uh, a lot of questions. How could the changes address the realities uh, that the law left out uh, some 20 years ago, I think, was the last time they tweaked it at all? Um, here's the thing. There was a, a, a review committee. We're going to speak uh, with a legal expert uh, on the air in a few m- minutes uh, who will tell us about how this kind of came to be. There, there was, I know, a review committee in 2017 across Canada that looked at the Family Law Reform Act and 
kind of scoured it and said, you know, these are the areas in which there need to be changes. That committee came up with a set of recommendations that were then submitted to the government. We'll get to the nuts and bolts of that in a second. But here for now is uh, Justice Minister uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. The amendments we are proposing to the Divorce Act will establish specific factors that courts must consider when assessing what is in the best interest of the child, based entirely on the child's own situation and not a one-size-fits-all approach. Now, i got to tell you, uh, there, there is no one-size-fits-all approach currently. And the law is such that the best interest of the child need to be considered at all times. And that's what justices rule on when cases make their way to court. And by the way, the vast majority of cases don't make it to a trial. Um, the very largest number of cases are, are settled with, without a trial. And the very largest number of cases are settled without any legal representation, which in and of itself, in my opinion, is a problem for us in Canada. Natalie Boutet is a family lawyer uh, with Boutet Family Law. And uh, Natalie, you've heard my uh, preamble there. Am I correct in some of these things? Yeah, absolutely. You're correct in the sense that uh, there's been a lot of discussions along the way to modernize uh, a number of uh, family-related statutes. This is a a huge overall, and it is is very welcome in, in the family law circles. But is it enough? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking um, we already have the legislation already provides for the best interest of the child being considered um, at all times. Uh, should we not be talking about uh, things like um, streamlining processes so that families don't have to go bankrupt in order to settle um, conflict, which this current system encourages families to do. They encourage an adversarial uh, position. Right. So there's a couple of amendments. Um, so you have to also understand that there, the, this is the legislation that every uh, married family would go through uh, when they would like to separate. But the ad- actual administration of the courts is a provincial is under provincial legislation so this addresses the overall legislation so some of the elements that are uh, very new to to our field is uh, with respect to the best interests of the children obviously to consider their heritage and their personal circumstances but the addition of a specific mention of family violence i think is very significant okay so let's talk about that what are what are the changes there well, that word, th- those words were not in the legislation. So now, if uh, and what happens in reality is there's a lot of people that uh, w- there's a lot of families where there's domestic violence, and the the victims of domestic violence have tended to uh, not be able to rely on the general wording of, of the current legislation to say there's domestic violence, therefore we need to pay special attention to parenting. And now this is going to open the door for these situations to be more focused on what is the impact on, on domestic violence uh, in and of itself rather than general statements about the best interests of the children. Okay, so what are some of the other key highlights? Uh, and before you answer that question, uh, just uh, help me out here. Uh, I referred to um, the, I think it was the Justice Department um, striking a committee that involved uh, stakeholders from all across Canada or all the provinces chiming in on the current 
uh, legislation and, and recommending changes, right? And didn't those recommendations go to the government in November of last year? So I'm not uh, able to answer those questions because I have not uh, familiarized myself in a while, so I would prefer not going there. Uh, but if, if, if you wanted to hear more about the uh, other ways that I think this is going to make a difference is another very powerful recommendation is to allow judges to r- obtain income information from from government sources. And this is a, a very significant change because currently, uh, even though everyone has an obligation to provide their financial disclosure, uh, sometimes it's very painful and time-consuming and expensive for people to chase uh, persons that do not want to be truthful about their income. And uh, judges having the, uh, would be given the right to have that information. And I think that's going to make a significant difference, both for cases that are in the court system and cases that are not in the court system. Uh, for cases that are in the court system, it's obvious because the judge would, would have um, additional powers of, of inquiry. But for cases that are not in the court system, which I believe is the majority of the families do not go to court, uh, if someone uh, is uh, refusing to disclose their income information in a timely manner, all the other person has to do is say, okay, do you want us to go to court? Because if we do, it's going to be found. So, you know, you may as well give us your information now. So I think it's going to have very significant uh, ripple effect for for a number of families that do not access the court system. That's a big thing, as you point out. Uh, the games that that people play with financial disclosure, and that that in and of itself is a part of the problem because people get all money focused in these things, and not child focused. They get all money focused, and and they circle the wagons around themselves, and and um, I, I guess they should just realize that. It, it, the math is the math, and yes, exactly. and, and it's and it's predeterminative. Like you make this amount of money if you're a higher income earning uh, parent, and you know the other parent has uh, access um, more time. Then there's formulas. They're simple for for setting it off. It, it it would be no different than if the relationship had stayed intact. Um, both parents are responsible for supporting uh, their children. I know. I agree. Uh, the other part of the uh, the changes that I'm really excited about is ad- uh, adding some administrative steps between the families and the court system, because what what happens is um, at the point where the court order is granted for the amount of support, uh, child support is to be reviewed each year in case there are changes in the payor's income. Mm-hmm. So what happens in reality is people are exhausted from the conflict that brought them to this order in the first place, and they're not looking forward to doing this each year. And some, some families, some, some support recipients, choose not to trigger a review each year because it's so painful. But if all they have to do is, is uh, access an, admi- an, an administrator or someone other than the big court system to review income information and fix the new amount and create the new order, uh, in reality, this will be uh, adding... Um, this will make it easier for a lot of families to do the reviews on a year-to-year basis. So this is part of the pr- proposed changes. Yes. Okay. Well, that, that absolutely. That's a very, uh, a very good thing. Uh, the vast. I have, I have a favorite one, though. I hope you have a, a bit more time. Sure, I do. Go okay, ahead. My favorite one, uh, because I'm a collaborative lawyer, I I, I, I practice uh, non-court, uh, and there will uh, there's a recommendation to add 
the obligation of the lawyer to inform their clients of the availability of collaborative negotiation. And the significance of this is collaborative negotiation occurs before any court application. It, it's, a, it's a parallel, and you can't have both, you have one or the other. So by mentioning this really amazing system to families, uh, hopefully a lot of disputes will be resolved without anyone being into the court system. Currently, the legislation mandates lawyers to mention mediation, but mediation, uh, mediation can happen when people are in the court system already. Whereas collaborative law, you, you don't start a court case in the first place. Yeah, you get them early, and you'd have to get them early. Be- you have to get them early. Because the more time that goes by, the more ginned up everybody gets, and, and the conflict grows, right? And if you, if you don't get them early and get them into that and get that contract, that collaborative law contract signed, that this is the method we're going to settle it by, then, you know, anything can happen from there. Exactly. The other thing, too, is when you uh, start a court case, you have to set out in writing all of the claims and the accusations and your story. And once you've seen that in writing, it really inflames people. So if people took a step back and, and, uh, and, and didn't, put, didn't have to put in writing all of their grievances against the other, but would resolve it with uh, skilled negotiators... I believe that more conflicts would be resolved more quickly. Yeah. Um, Most people, uh, Natalie, are not represented by lawyers at all. Most people are... There's a a word for it in in law, right? Is it pro se? No, that they're... It's a self-represented litigant. Yeah, they're self-represented. The vast majority, like over 80%, are self-represented. I can assume the reason for that is the cost of, of hiring lawyers to represent you. But but this is not a good system when when we have 80% of people not represented by a legal expert. Would you not no, agree? I, I agree. It's, uh, I, I believe people are not represented, like you said, because it's very expensive. So there are more and more... Uh, services, mediation services, and collaborative services that service low-means families. Uh, There's a system in Toronto that has developed where the collaborative community and the mediation community have pulled together to offer low-cost services. Uh, I know in Barrie there's a a service where uh, people fill out a questionnaire to see if they're um, high-conflict or low-conflict, and if they're low-conflict, they're offered a streamlined a fixed cost, uh, a collaborative process. So there's a lot of resources to keep people out of the court system and resolve their dispute uh, with professionals like like mediators and collaborative lawyers. But um, I, I would encourage the public to seek out these services before they run to the court system. Why um, Why do people choose to practice family law? I cannot imagine mm-hmm. why you go into that business. I want to help people. I think the family law system is very complicated, and if I have a chance to explain it to someone and guide them through decision-making, it, it, it makes my day. One of, the, one of the circumstances in family law is, of course, people are angry and nervous that they're going to get taken advantage of, and they're revenge, you know, they want revenge, and that is uh, one of the reasons why court cases are so long, is people, people make decisions when they're angry. And if you are guided to, to take a deep breath and really understand the consequences of what you're doing, very often that can stir people in a different direction and, and use reason instead of anger to make decisions. 
Natalie Boutet, uh, family uh, law practitioner uh, with Boutet Family Law. Uh, thanks very much for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.